You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi there, this is the legendary Tom DeFalco. And you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is another episode of Daredevil, episode 14B. The second half of the epic collection, Heart of Darkness, covering a period of Daredevil from 1990. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. I'm your Daredevil co-host, Adam Chapman. Adam, which issues are we talking about today? So we're talking about Daredevil 278 up to 282, and then we're talking about uh, material from Punisher Annual 3, Incredible Hulk Annual 16, Silver Surfer Annual Number 3, and the entirety of Daredevil Annual 6. Let's just talk about that annual for a second here. Uh, A lot of questions that I get asked about the Epic Collections are how they deal with the annual crossovers. And so I just want to say right here that sometimes you'll find that the entire story is in one Epic Collection and then just the parts are in the other Epic Collection. So so if it's a huge crossover, let's say like um, Operation Galactic Storm, which is 19 parts, there is an entire Avengers epic collection devoted to just that crossover. Same with Maximum Carnage. And then uh, in if you have like a, what is it, the Iron Man epic collection called War Machine or the Captain America epic collection called Blood and Glory, only those character specific chapters are included in their specific books, their respective books. Uh, so you don't get the the whole crossover reprinted 16 times if you're collecting all of the epic collections. Uh, in the cases of these annuals, sometimes let's say sometimes only one part will be in there. Sometimes a couple of parts will be in there. And I think of like the Days of Future Past. No, sorry, the Days of Future Present annual crossover. Yes. That one is collected in full in a Fantastic Four epic collection but that's because the fantastic four are the ones that start off that adventure and so they are in every chapter and then later on uh the x-men join them and so in the x-men epic collection uh you'll only have the the x-men relevant chapters Mm. as far as this this story here is concerned life form the four chapters are fairly standalone the characters don't really cross over so if you have the Silver Surfer epic collection called Thanos Quest, that one has only the Silver Surfer chapter in it. It doesn't have the other three. But in Daredevil here, we've reprinted all four of them. And I think that this is a good choice. Daredevil is actually the only character that appears in one of the other uh, uh, annuals. He's in the Incredible Hulk annual for just a page. But that mm-hmm. has more continu- continuity than any of the other chapters of uh, of this life form crossover. And also, all of the backup stories in this annual have to do with this crossover, this life form story. None of the other backup stories in any of the other, like the Punisher, the Hulk, or the Silver Surfer uh, annuals, they don't have anything to do with life form. So it hmm. makes sense that we're getting the full story, all four chapters in the Daredevil epic collection in this case. Do you want to jump right ahead and just talk about it? I mean, it's, it's, out, of, it's out of continuity and context with what we're going to be reading anyway. 
Sure. Yeah, I don't mind doing that. And then we can actually end this episode with the end of uh, John Romita Jr.'s run on this title. I think that'll be quite fitting. So sure. Yeah, let's jump into the annuals right now. Uh, if you are following along and just reading the epic collection, you can just skip ahead in the episode, I suppose, and uh, and and jump to wherever you are at if you want to start with the regular issues. But yeah, let's go with Punisher. Part one of four of Life Form, Punisher Annual number three. It's interesting to me, right off the top, so just looking at the cover, um, this speaks to an issue that I think a lot of the annuals sometimes had, but a lot of just Marvel books at the time, and I think Fabian Nicias has talked about this on his Twitter before, is that there's so much text that's front-loaded on here, but it all kind of works apart from each other. Like, you have the Marvel Annual logo, Obviously, you know, you have the price and you have the how many pages, which is a big deal because it is such a thick annual. Then you've got the fact that it's life form part one of four. So letting you know that, oh, wait, you're going to need to pick up other books. Um, and then, again, a bunch of different like kind of micro alone, death by life form, Punisher's arsenal entries, more Punisher's fighting tips and more. And it's like so much of it is like in different types of boxes, different fonts. It's just it makes it look very busy. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. I, I know that what they're trying to do is is like really sell you that there is a ton of content out here and that the cover image alone doesn't really describe the full extent of this annual. But yeah, you're right. It's like the yellow boxes, I think, are all supposed to go together. So it's like part one of four and more. There's more in this issue. Punisher's fighting tips, Punisher's arsenal entries and more. Um, but they're spread out so oddly over the course of the cover that you don't write, you don't read them together. No. And what's this micro alone bubble right in here? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about it is that if you think about it in the context of comics, it seems bizarre to us. But if this was just a magazine, yeah, okay, they do that all the time. Like it's just something about how we've been trained with comic books as a as a form that having it like this seems so foreign to us. Yeah, if you picked up like a. I don't know, like a Maxim or a Cosmo or something like that. Like, this is what they would be like. That's very true. And I think especially nowadays, we treat the covers as masterpieces of works of art, whereas this one is definitely giving off that magazine vibe. You're right when you say that. Like, you think about any of those ones you see at the checkout stand, how they just are front-loaded with so much just random text to to let you know what's inside the issue. Huh. For wow. sure. <laughs> They need they need you to buy it. And like if something like this, it's sixty-four pages. It's, I guess it's a sense of it's also kind of a signpost for people to know that it's not just one story, you're gonna get more, you know, like you're gonna get different narratives, different stories, different things. And I guess again, that could be more of an enticement. If you only have two dollars, maybe this is where you want to spend your two bucks. It's interesting though, if you look at the other covers to this uh, to this crossover, Silver Surfer has no extra copy on it. Uh, Daredevil oh. has no extra copy on it, or and it, it actually it it says Daredevil versus a man made Night Stalker, so it, it is relevant to the main story. And then the Hulk one has one box that just says, "Hey, there's two other stories in here. One about Doc Samson and She-Hulk. That makes sense. It's, oh, for sure. It's that really just the much Punisher. More effective. It's just the Punisher one. And hmm. I'm gonna guess. I don't know who the editor of this of this whole. I mean, Don Daly is the editor of this one story, but I don't know if he's the editor of the annual itself because it's the editor who would be in charge of making the cover and putting the copy on the cover. True. Okay, on with the story. Yes. Um, so I, I think the, in terms of narrative, the, the Punishers is probably the most straightforward generally. Yeah. Um, that you, have, you have someone breaking in to programma uh, to steal something. Um, it almost goes you know, off without a hitch, but, not, but then you know, he, gets, he does get surprised. Uh, a fight ensues, and he ends up being exposed to, the, you know, to this weaponized agent. 
uh, without really realizing what was happening, but knowing that, you know, his, his, his dad will fix it up. Although at the time, I wasn't sure if Pop was like, you know, some other word or code. I didn't realize it was actually going to be his dad. Yeah. I found that confusing, actually. The, the All of the players that were introduced to in the middle here, or at the beginning here, I, I couldn't quite keep them straight. I had to re- really pay attention to who was who because we have not only this one guy who gets exposed and then he shows up later and he's already deformed and I actually didn't clue in that it was the same person. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not the most clear because when you're at AIM, you're almost like, who are we, who are we following when they're at AIM? Yeah. We know the Punisher's there, but who else are we talking to? And then it switches scenes to the the, the father and the daughter and I didn't realize that they were talking about the same person uh, until the guy busts in the window and says, hey, dad, it's me. And then I started putting it all together. But I felt like the storytelling at the beginning was a little bit confusing in terms of who the good guys were, who the bad guys were, uh, or anything like that. I actually think that might have been a deliberate choice. Maybe. Um, because, you know, to kind of add an extra level, like you're trying to kind of figure out what's going on, like what are the connections here? Because I think without that kind of, you know, quote unquote reveal or that kind of slowly kind of coming together, I don't know if it works as well. In fact, a lot of the most interesting thing with this, you know, with life forms kind of, uh, his past is not even in this issue. It's two issues from now in Incredible Hulk, where you get a lot more of a sense of who this guy actually was as a character, which I appreciated by the yeah. time we got there. True. Because he was kind of used as a cipher, right? Like, you know, we were kind of meant to maybe pity him because he really wanted his dad's approval, but like, we didn't really know what was going on there. And it was a lot more interesting. Was, and no surprise, Peter David opens up the hood and tells you everything about this guy's, you know, psyche. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that, that actually makes sense. I did enjoy this issue, actually, because it had a lot of mystery. And I do like Mike Barron's writing on Punisher. I've uh, only kind of recently, because of this podcast, started reading his work. And I've quite enjoyed it. And so the action and the way that the Punisher deals with this, like, he got a tip at the very beginning here that AIM mm-hmm. is working on biological weapons. And of course, this is going to be something that Punisher is going to check out. And it just, uh, it like you said, it starts small. It starts very street level. And Punisher is the perfect place for this place to begin. And you think about it, like the last chapter is Silver Surfer. It's going to go in a very different direction. But I love the, the tone and the way that this one uh, comes off. I just think the storytelling at the, at the beginning was maybe not as strong as I would have wanted it to be. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting reading, you know, Punisher of this era. I haven't obviously read nearly as much as you have. But I mean, like, he's he's not he's not what we would eventually kind of get in the 2000s when he went, like, uber street level, almost <laughs> too much. Like, he's still in the uniform, still with the giant boots. Like, there's still more of a comic booky sensibility, but it's still pretty dark. And again, yeah. I, what keeps striking me about reading these volumes of Daredevil is that this is 1990. And, like, I'm like, how did this stuff get past the code? There's a lot of brutal violence, and I'm just like, whoa. Yeah, I think they didn't really pay attention to the code, or the code didn't pay attention to them at, at this point. Um, because, yeah, like, we see some with stuff lot. with the Punisher here. You know, there's, like, there's gutting. Like, you know, when you have Georgie at the beginning, you know, when he's uh, first breaking in, I mean, like, he... You know, they kind of show it off panel, but you still see that there's blood and, and guts, and you know what just happened. Like, there's not a lot of, you know, imagination drawn here. Like, you see the guy with the switchblade as the guy's on top of him, and then you see that there's just blood gushing out of him. I guess it's not red, so technically it's not as, you know, bloody, but it's, <laughs> right. it's still something. Well, if you go to page 358, when uh, when George busts into the, the room there, Punisher in the middle panel there shoots him in the face point blank. Like, four times oh, yeah, you see right. blam, blam, blam. And that's pretty brutally violent. This is our hero, the hero of the book, doing this to this guy. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's very, very violent for the time. 
it is easier to get around monsters because at this point, like he's not really human. He looks like a monster. Yeah. So if you're quick, quickly kind of going through it, if you're a comic code, I, I, I can't imagine the comics code authority was a very large body. So I'm sure it was like a couple <laughs> people reading thousands of comics and like, okay, well it's a monster. So that's probably fine. Right. Yeah. If you actually read it, you like there is a, like, this is this guy's son. Punisher just shot the guy's son in the face right in front of him. <laughs> it's, it's pretty brutal. Uh, I would yeah. say that, as you said, like this is probably the breeziest of the four chapters. Um, I think it probably has the best sense of pacing in terms of, you know, having a very clear narrative. Um, I think it's in the other issues where, you know, it kind of goes all over the place. It's still enjoyable for the most part, but again, it's not quite as clean and smooth. Um, and a lot of weirder stuff happens. It's very interesting when you think about these four chapters. They are actually written, with the exception of Daredevil, they're all written by the regular series writers at the time. So this one being written by Mike Barron, it definitely feels exactly like um, a contemporary Punisher comic of the time. Uh, the, mm. And when you get, go over to the Hulk one, yep, that feels like a Peter David Hulk story. Uh, but then the Daredevil issue is very different. It's written by Gregory Wright, and it uh, it is it's very different because it it follows the narrative of Phil Urick, and there's a lot more exposition and uh, and kind of jumping around. So, uh, you want to move on to the next chapter here? Sure. It is interesting because didn't Gregory Wright write the other annual too? Like, is he the Daredevil annual guy? He kind of is. He has he wrote a bunch of these annuals, and he also wrote the annual that we covered in the Fall from Grace episode. And okay. Gregory Wright actually wrote um, the story in Root of Evil where Daredevil goes underground and meets that uh, old um, weird kingpin character. Oh, yeah. That's all Gregory Wright. So he he is a Daredevil okay. writer. He's run, written a lot for DD, but uh, but at the time, he's not the regular writer. He's Anne Nascenti. So interesting. It's interesting to connect. Like I'm curious what the thought process was with Machio, because I mean, this wouldn't have been out of nowhere. They obviously would have been planning the annuals, and yet this kind of we don't know where this takes place for Daredevil. Like, this is not, and I don't even think there's like a specific kind of um, you know narrative device like before where they were like, oh, this is earlier, this is before. We just kind of have to piece it out ourselves. But I mean, this is not the Daredevil you've been reading for like a year at this point, which is also different because the the Incredible Hulk story is firmly in a very specific era for the Hulk. And oh, yeah, very Silver Surfer is even making references to things that are happening in his title at the time. But this Daredevil is, yeah, he's back in Hell's Kitchen and you feel you're talking to Phil Urich and stuff. It's not at yeah, all. It, yeah, it's not in continuity. No. Yeah, and we don't even know, like, I mean, they don't, like, we, and we even see Matt a little bit and we're like, well, where, where, where is Matt at this point? Like, he's got, a, like, he looks like he's dressing better. Like, I, I'm just not sure where, yeah, when and where this is. It's just confusing. I mean, we probably shouldn't think so hard about it, but especially when you read it in a chronological collection like this, you're just like, wait, what? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that really sets this story kind of apart from everything else we've been talking about. Uh, and and you know what? Maybe we should have talked about this after because if people are listening to our podcast episodes, you know, Daredevil is uh, battling Mephisto and then we take a break for Life Form and then we're back with Mephisto again. <laughs> right? But whatever. It's, it's fine. <laughs> We can jump around. Uh, so, yeah, it is a Ben, a, you know, ostensibly a, a Ben Yurick story. He's chasing a lead. This is probably the, the most heartless we've seen Ben Yurick, too. Like, it's weird. that Like, I mean, obviously, he always wants the story, but he always is kind of, he's still a human being first. And here, he yep. feels like he prioritizes the story more. And, it, and it's weird 
Um, there's a lot of like, you know, Gregory Wright is using a lot of what Nascenti had planted in Hell's Kitchen, though. Like we got the Wild Boys, um, you know, we got we got the kids. Like we have a lot of the regular players, so it's not like it's completely foreign in terms of you know what Daredevil is doing. It's just not what was happening at the time. And all the stories do kind of, you know, they're they're separate stories, but they all have the the common thread of this monster. It's weird because, you know, some of the some of the how continuity kind of fits all together is not perfect, but once you read them all, you can kind of, you know, decide where they all place. And they are interesting. And I do like the Wild Boy story. Um, the Typhoid Mary story is kind of the weirdest. <laughs> yeah. So th- this is interesting. So let's just talk about the main story for for a second here. It's called sure. it's called Predator, and we thought that the life form died at the end of the Punisher annual, but he's actually still alive and he's mutating more and now in this issue he finds that he needs uh to feast on human flesh in order to to stay to stay strong he's got this hunger and so this is a very dark kind of a story for daredevil and uh, this this creature is lurking in in the alleys and stuff and that's that's where he encounters the wild boys and we get that wild boys kind of fight and stuff and and we also get to it, it sets up all of the stories all of the plot lines in this first story set up all of the backup stories that are in this annual here so we we see the police officer touching the you know the the arm that got blown off of life form and that's going to play up later and we we see also that uh this life form it's sort of like a symbiotic relationship where the the life form that is the, the virus that's mutating this guy is now starting to talk to him so george who's the man in who's being mutated He's having this internal dialogue with life form and they're at odds and life forms trying to control him. And that's why he meets up with Mary later, because Mary has that schizophrenia as well. And so yeah. they kind of have this kind of kindred spirit moment later. But that's that's in a second. We'll get to that in a second. Um, we also are introduced to the guy who's going to kind of uh, provide some sort of a um, uh, like a cure, I guess, or something like that. His name is Lamar. He's an AIM scientist who's kind of a little bit of a whistleblower, and he contacts Yurik. And he, the, the Yurik and Lamar, these are the characters that carry over into the Incredible Hulk chapter, and we'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. A, a quick comment about the idea that, you know, that this main story kind of ends up dovetailing into the other backups. Again, this is something that Gregory Wright did with the last annual we talked about in this book. That's where, right. You know, they all, they all had a connection, something would happen, and we, then we would see you know, someone was talking about something elsewhere or they'd overhear something and then we'd kind of switch to that in the next story. So he's doing a lot of that, which I got to say, if you're going to write an annual, kind of the way to do it, right? Totally. Like, I think it's great. You're getting separate stories, but they all take place on like the same night or using the same characters and they're similar, like, I, you know, concepts. And it feels much more natural than just throwing a bunch of stories all together. And that's why we get it here in the Daredevil Epic Collection. Uh, we don't get any of the backup stories from any of the other three annuals because they don't relate. But because these ones do, here we are. I love the Fat Boys story. It's just kind of a fun little story. Uh, Darla um, Darla dares 8-Ball to go and steal a skateboard from a rival gang. And they just kind of have this kind of a, a fun little moment here. And then they meet Life Form in an alley and almost die and almost get caught by the uh, the other rival gang and then daredevil comes and saves and i like how daredevil is like a he's sort of like a mentor to these kids the kids mm. are de- they they definitely are a gang and they act like kids and stuff and they do stuff like stealing and 
and, and whatever. But especially 8-Ball keeps saying, man, I, how come I'm always messing up? I, I'm always doing the wrong thing. I always get in trouble. I don't mean to. And Daredevil treats them treats them like, you know, like he's the, their mentor or something like that. He says, it's called growing up, learn from it mm-hmm. and return and return that board to the tunnel teens. <laughs> and then he takes off and says, uh, and lying is not a way to impress girls. I love that line as well. <laughs> he gets all embarrassed. Yeah. It's funny. On that, on that page 405, I felt like, well, first of all, the first panel with Daredevil kind of standing with his arms, that's obviously to emulate the classic logo for Daredevil. Yep. Um, the corner box, you mean? Yeah. But yeah, the corner box. But also in the fourth panel, the last panel on that page, that just looks like a Gene Colon face. Yeah, like there's like there's something about this page. If you'd said that Gene Colan did it, I would have been like, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. With and with the, the bird's eye view in the second panel, something that Gene would do often as well. I mean, totally. It's not impossible. Nope. <laughs> It's nice. Yeah, I like it. And then the next backup story is called Innocent Bystander. And this is uh, this was a, a really interesting one, too, because both of the cops um, who were mm. investigating life form touched the life form. Um, I don't know. The, the They got infected by life form. And so one of them had to get sent to the hospital right away. And the other one is... Uh, uh, the other one is is has a slow what do you call it? He's he's slowly mutating, and what we didn't know in the first like the main story is that these guys are actually not that great. They're like shaking down businesses for um for protection money and stuff, and so they're not they're not good guys, and they're kind of getting their comeuppance by being infected by this virus. So that was an interesting well, only, little way to only add. only one of them gets the comeuppance though, right? The other ones not infected they both get infected one of them you sure because because remember the one of them is in the hospital bed and the other guy tries to talk to him about where the money is and then he gets shoot out by the nurse and then the guy oh, who's right already infected you know and we already knew he died from an earlier story right um in the collection we already kind of knew that he was at the hospital and it didn't go so well and now we're actually seeing what happened that's right yeah, yeah yeah that's that's correct you are right there it's, and this is the hallucinations and the way he dies is is quite brutal. Yeah. Um, Again, comics code approved. Yeah, yeah. I like this story too. I think all of these backups are quite well done. But you're right. So this one guy gets away. Um, but I don't know. I thought that he died somewhere else too. I guess I must have misread that. I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, this could be the last we see of it. But he, remember, he doesn't know where the money is. So now when, when his partner dies, he doesn't even get the money necessarily. Right. So it doesn't work out for him too. So it's like... Yay, we get to see the bad guys, the the dirty cops fail at their job. It's refreshing to see Typhoid Mary here in a way because because the regular book has been so divorced from everything going on in New York. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, she's still like the assassin for, (laughs) you know, the Kingpin. It's nice to see that she's still enforcing stuff. Um, also on this on these pages specifically, um, life form is starting to look more and more like like Swamp Thing. Yes, that's right. He does look like Swamp Thing. And I'm like, they didn't get sued over this, like. <laughs> Different enough, I guess. Michael Baer is the guy who's doing the artwork here, and I love his panel arrangements here. Uh, right on the title page, with the with the right underneath the title, we see these skinny panels that are splitting up uh, typhoid and life form, uh, so that you know we're talking about different personalities, and that's kind of to represent that. He does a, a lot of stuff through these few pages that are very, I would say, kind of early Jim Starlin like. Like when he was on the mm. Warlock title, he, oh, yeah. would, he would do a lot of this kind of interesting uh, layouts. And if you go to page 418 and we see the one, uh, like the middle tier where 
uh, right in the middle life form saying can't won't not yet and mm. it's all broken up and you get this sort of um abstract looking kind of stuff in the middle and life form and Mar- and typhoid mary are are on the other either side of that panel in the middle and they're looking a little abstract as well like that's this is stuff that jim starlin would play with in those early uh, early books that he did in the 70s it is a good exploration of typhoid. Again, the only bad part is that we don't get any resolution to her story, really. Like, she's still kind of out there and still dealing with Mary being there. Yeah. But, but nothing really happens because of the nature of, you know, he's not the ongoing writer. This is not continuing necessarily the ongoing story. It's just kind of showing you where she was. Yeah. I like that they made use of the pink speech balloons in this one again. Mm-hmm. So that we know right. it's it's typhoid talking, and then the in the white ones it's Mary talking, and so there's a point on page four twenty and four twenty one where Mary and typhoid are having a, an internal fight, and Lifeform recognizes this, and and she already recognized that he's having the same internal conflict himself, and so at the very end on the very last page he there's like this look of longing from life form like he he or no i guess he's going after the people who are approaching but i feel like they have this kind of kindred spirit or this moment that connects them yeah they they, they somehow understand each other or get each other yeah but that's that annual uh, very interesting stuff i thought that i really enjoyed how that was broken down and the fact that it had all those backup stories that related i thought it was quite quite well done it, which is unusual i think for an annual i'm usually not as impressed by the annual stuff well i think i think part of it's just by virtue of what we've already said that you have one writer writing it all yep. so you are just i mean there's going to be a level of consistency that you don't usually have a lot of the annuals we've been reading You'll get one guy, like even the first annual, I mean, at least there was only two writers there, but you had Jerry Conway doing the Atlantis attack story, and then you had Gregory Wright doing all the rest. Now, at least all the ones he did all ended up connecting, and it felt much more cohesive. Um, so, yeah, there's just something really nice about having an annual writer on staff, I guess, who's just ready for the annual. <laughs> right. Okay, moving on to Incredible Hulk, annual number 16. This is fascinating because it's classic... It's classic what we've always heard about Peter David, that he's writing a book and he's told he has to connect it to something. And he goes, ugh, fine, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and so, yes. And then he figures it out and then it's fine. But it's so like, I, I, got, I, don't, I, I don't think I've really read a lot of it, uh, this era of his Hulk. So I don't know this Mercy character. I don't know what she is or why she is. But, you know, she's without her, you don't really have the storylines converging. You don't have life form uh, you know, interacting with the Hulk. Um, I like the exploration of who Lifeform was, like I mentioned earlier, which I didn't think we really got before. Um, and we also get to see the resolution of uh, the whistleblower storyline, which again, I did not expect to see more of. Um, so I was I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, I also, you know, the Hulk is such a dick here. And like, yeah. I knew that Joe Fixit was a dick, but even then I was a little unexpecting it, but also the whimsy of, of the, of the gray Hulk and like him acting and, and being kind of silly. I also did not expect at all. <laughs> um, there's definitely like an interesting portrayal of duality, which is something obviously that uh, Peter David does a lot in the Hulk in terms of using life form to do it. I did think it was interesting overall and a good story, but it was just classic. Like, how do we get there? And he just figures out a weird, the weirdest way possible. And I love the storytelling device of George, this guy kind of talking to us, the viewer. Now he's not actually talking to us as we find out at the, by the end of the story, but I, I love that just him telling the tale of him meeting the Hulk and then him also slowly mutating throughout the course of this story too. It's just a, a great exercise in storytelling and also uh, for the artist Angel Medina to 
to be able to portray this. Right. I thought it was really, really a lot of fun. When you first see him, though, like when you first see it and you're starting to read it before you get to the fact that it's George Prufrock, um, you know, at first I was like, is it Rick Jones? I can't remember where he is at this time. It's not Banner. He's too muscular to be Banner. Like, you know, and then obviously they show you right away. But it was just interesting way to start it because you're instantly like, who is this? Is this someone I'm supposed to know? What's going on? And yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not like it's a device that Peter David hasn't used before, um, but it, you know, it works because it allows you to achieve certain things in the storytelling that you couldn't naturally achieve otherwise without it being kind of foreign or not built into the fabric of how the story is being told. Yeah, I, I totally agree. To talk about this Mercy character, I think, I, like you, I haven't read a lot of this this specific part of Peter David's run. I've read a, read a lot of like the later stuff. So I'm not familiar with his character either, but it seems like this is an important issue or an important story for Mercy because she makes the decision to not kill anybody anymore. And that's kind mm. of, I guess that's kind of her thing is um, taking people who are depressed or don't have anything to live for and actually just kind of finishing them off. And so Lifeform wants to die. Uh, George wants to die. He's he's mutated so much that he realizes he is no longer a person and just doesn't want to live anymore. And Mercy is not going to do that. So I thought that, I don't know if that has any ramifications mm. to the main story, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is. And then... Um, we, yeah, we find out a little bit more about the backstory. This whole thing started because um, George, who's a janitor for AIM, is like, I don't know how people apply to be a janitor for AIM. Like, I, you, I really wonder. Do you give it a resume? Do they hire an external cleaning service or whatever? But um, this guy's the janitor and he gets bit by a monkey. And that's what kind of <laughs> starts this whole thing. Um, <laughs> and he's, oh, no, sorry. That's not George. George doesn't get bit by the monkey. It's the um, the Lamar that he's in the hospital and he's mutating slowly. He's a whistleblower. And mm. we find, I love this twist at the end where we find out that the whole time George has been talking to Lamar and then George is going to finish off Lamar. And then when we flip over to the Silver Surfer page, the first thing we see in Sil Silver Surfer, um, not the first thing we see, but on page 458 is Lamar being finished off. And in fact, he's actually being absorbed into life form and life form starts <laughs> absorbing a whole bunch of different people in the hospital. And now he's like disgusting. And, and the way that, that Ron Lim draws him now is like, you can see all the organs on the outside of his body and stuff. It's pretty grotesque. Yeah. So this one I made mention that uh, um, Silver Surfer references stuff right in his own series that's happening at the time. And so at this point, Thanos just died and Silver Surfer has come to update the Avengers file saying, hey, Cap, can you just make a note that uh, Thanos is dead? <laughs> I like this is a fascinating part of Avengers, uh, the Avengers history that or like the way Avengers works that you don't normally think about. It's like, yeah, you got to update your computers when stuff like this happens. And if it happens in outer space, someone has to go back and tell the Avengers that, that it happened. Yeah, it felt weird. I mean, it was definitely just a, a device in order to get Silver Surfer back to Earth because he's not usually on Earth in his title at the time. Well, yeah, no, for sure. And it's not the only time that ha that's something that, you know, kind of happens in this issue like that, because although I do like that we get a, a close up on the file name Thanos status closed. Huh, <laughs> if only. Yeah. Um, but uh, but even like, you know, Mr. Fantastic being involved by 
you know, such a weird way of getting him involved by having Nick Fury ask him to do something and they have a kind of an issue with each other. I'm like, that seems just like a lot of unnecessary world building. Yeah, I can't remember what was happening at the time between Reed and Nick Fury. Something must have been going on in 1990. I, I, of the four chapters, I feel like this is the one where I kind of not skimmed it, but like I felt like it was the lightest read because it just felt like, eh, like it didn't. There's just yeah. a lot of, you know, he's a giant monster now and I'm going to push him out and make a choice not to end his suffering. Like it, that part was interesting at the end where he does, you know, have to kind of make the decision. Do I kill um, or do I prolong this thing's suffering, which I found interesting, you know, concept, but getting there just felt like a lot of like, okay, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, yeah, you know, it's silver surfer. Get it done already. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, it was a lot of buildup and a lot of kind of filler to, to just pad out the page count to get to the point where silver surfer actually has to confront life form. And then once he does confront life form, nothing like we had, let's see here. They can, he blasts him on page 474 and then 475, 76, 77, 78, 79 is just silver surfer lifting him up into the sky. Like that's five yeah. pages of lifting him up into the sky. It looks nice. I love Ron Lim's artwork, but you're right. It really does take its time as a basic plot. But we're at the end of the story. And usually third acts are like this. They, you know, if you go to a th- the third act of a movie, um, yeah. it's all action. The, the, the characters are known. The character development is over. The plot development is over. We're just kind of at the wrap-up stage. And that's this entire annual. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, like you said, I like I like the the moral quandary that Silver Surfer has at the end here, which he kind of is often faced with. It's like, do I kill this guy or do I? Um, usually, it's like, do I send him to you know get get his just desserts or whatever? But this guy is like, he didn't do anything. The life form is an innocent creature who is only yeah. I find it interesting the 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 decision that they had him make. Like, I, and I was like, I don't know if I really like the ending to be honest because of that decision. It's it's really it is definitely haunting because this thing just wanted to die be put out its misery he didn't want to become this thing and then he's just left there to be there forever like he put him on a dead planet he purposely put him there so that he wouldn't have any life forms to kill but that means that he has essentially just sentenced this guy to starve to death so he did in the end end up killing him in the worst way possible yeah slow torturous death Yeah, very odd end. But, you know, I, I did enjoy this storyline for the all four chapters. It worked well together, and um, I thought it was good. For sure. So I think at this point we should jump back to the regular series issues and carry on from there. So we're going to start off with page... Uh, sorry, with with issue number 278, the, called The Deadly Seven. And right on the front cover, this one is a Daredevil fighting Blackheart, and it says Heart of Darkness right on the cover. That's where this epic collection gets its title, even though it's not one of mm-hmm. the issue titles. Uh, in this issue, Mephisto sends Blackheart uh, to go and tempt Daredevil and all of the other guys that he's hanging around with uh, to, to evil. He wants them to all succumb to temptation. And Blackheart, this is the first time I think we've seen Blackheart since that run-in at the amusement park with the, with the Spider-Man guest appearance. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of going to be a major player through uh, the rest of this arc here. 
what a weird ragtag team of people we have here in this like all of daredevil supporting cast right now is brandy the the animal rights activist and <laughs> karnak and G- gorgon from the inhumans the uh, genetically uh, or biogenetically engineered woman number nine. She just goes by number nine. And uh, it's just an odd bunch of people all kind of thrown in in together. (laughs) It really is. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's just a weird group, weird choices. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're used to Daredevil being kind of a claustrophobic character. Like he's in New York, he's amongst all these people. And now they're kind of out out having like a road trip. I mean, it's very different. Yeah. Um, I do like the, you know, the idea here that, you know, you have everyone starting to feel evil and temptation and seeing Daredevil trying to kind of figure out what it means, even though everyone else is kind of too busy dealing with themselves uh, to actually be clear headed enough to figure that out. And then they're, they kind of just think that he's going on beating up this man, even though it's Blackheart. Um, it's an interesting perspective. I think the art is so important to making these issues work or not. Uh, and that your mileage can vary. I do think that, uh, Romita Jr.'s Daredevil, the, the scratchy um, facial hair really works. It sounds stupid, but I mean, you're getting the sense of this. This is not your the regular Daredevil. You're not, you know, he he's really been pushed to this extreme, and so you have this, you know, disheveled character. And I feel like Anasenti writes into that. Yeah. Um, however, I also really don't like the look of Mephisto. Uh, I think <laughs> yeah. Mephisto by uh, John Romita Jr. is probably my least favorite depiction of the character. I think. I know a lot of people do love it. It's just not for me. Yeah, you mentioned that in the last one as well. It's like, as I was reading this these stories, I'm like, oh man, Adam's going to have a hard time with this. There's just so much of that. <laughs> the 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 long, uh, ugly teeth and all these demons that look like that and through these issues. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I think it looks nice. It's def- definitely weird to see Mephisto like that because usually he has his classic, you know, devil look to him. And it's just, this is very strange. But It's so interesting too to, look, to read something like this because obviously like, this is Blackheart's first big appearance. He obviously becomes a bigger character for other characters that aren't Daredevil. Um, but I mean, I think people of a certain generation will also remember him from like the Marvel versus Capcom two game. Yep. Um, and that's kind of the look I have in my mind. So when I see the original kind of version by John Amita Jr., I'm always like, well, he doesn't look right to me. I'm like, no, he looks right. I'm just used to something who doesn't look right. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy who created him. So this has to, if anything looks right, it's got to be this one, I would yeah. imagine. The interesting, interesting thing about the design of Blackheart is that, you know, with the, the, the spikes and the tendrils and everything kind of coming out of his head, and, and it's a really imposing look, but I think part of what makes that work for me more than the Mephisto is that because it's in, you know, dark blue and, and blacks and it kind of looks more intimidating and there's just a little bit more drawn of, like, you can't see it all. And I think that works better, whereas Mephisto, because of his classic color scheme, it just doesn't look right. I don't know. It just bugs me. Yeah. Um, so on page 232, Blackheart is described as son of man. He says he is Blackheart. He is the son of man. Son of man is one of the ways that uh, Jesus is described in the Bible. And so mm. we are, I think we're now supposed to say that this is basically the Antichrist. We're, okay. if, if Jesus is the son of God and Blackheart is the son of Mephisto, then this is the, the Antichrist and sent to earth in order to ruin people instead of save them, right? Yeah. So I think we're making that comparison here, and that plays in heavily to all of the heaven and hell stuff we're going to get to uh, in the in the future issues here. Yeah, I do feel like this issue benefits from there being a fill-in right before it. Like, you know, it feels like 
JRJR got ahead of the deadline on this one. Yeah. Because some, like, some of the panel work, I think, does feel more intricate. There's like, finer line work. It doesn't feel like it, it's rushed. Um, the action panels are really well put together. Even the, the you know, the the development of um, Blackheart as this this bystander who gets a ride with them. Like, e- even in those panels when they're riding in the Jeep, the, the, the uh, like, everyone looks very on panel. It doesn't look like there's a wasted line. It doesn't look like there's any shortcuts. Like, I, I'm really impressed with his work here, and it feels like he must have had more time. Yeah, there's some really, really great stuff. And what I, I love on page uh, 241, the bottom three panels after he's kind of beaten up this this person, his head just lifts up in those three panels, mm. and it's really, really nice. Just you get the different angles, and you can see that John Romita just knows how to draw a head, which is really, really good. And then if you flip on the page there, on page 242 and 243, when Daredevil is beating up Blackheart, but, but Blackheart just doesn't feel anything, mm. like you really get the sense of the force of all of the the punches that are being thrown here. Just Absolutely. wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Yeah, it's a good issue. One thing that I do think of as I read these issues, and it's it's a silly thought, but I feel like there's something to be said for the original method of reading these where I was on newsprint and a certain color to newsprint and I felt a certain dirtier feeling. And I feel like that really lends itself well to this era, whereas having it on a more of a crisp, you know, kind of paper with, a, you know, the, everything's a little bit easy, like it's not as kind of faded looking of what the, the look of having something on on the kind of the newsprint that uh, comics used to be on. I think there is an element of that that I, that I miss. Yeah. Um, as, like if I pull out my single issues of this run, like there's just a dirtier, scratchier feeling just because the, you know, the, the work was different. It was on a different type of paper. Um, it's a silly comment, but you know, there, I can't help but think about it when we go through these issues. Oh, for sure. And the ink bleeds a different way in pulpy newsprint mm. than it does on, because the, the ink is, is laying on top of the page here rather than being soaked into the page, like with newsprint. And so definitely, has a different look uh, and you're right to, to see it kind of with that dirtier grittier kind of feel does change the atmosphere and I love the smell of old comics too I think that has something to do with it too <laughs> oh for sure oh you want to go on to 279 oh yeah before the flame this is uh, again by Nascenti and, and, and Bermuda Jr. this has uh, the Pope character and some more kind of I guess you know uh, religious you know iconography or usage it's interesting that to do that right after the last issue with the son of man yep and they'll they'll be doing that a lot through these next few issues yeah for sure um i didn't i I, i'm trying to remember this issue because it all kind of bled together because i did read it on one afternoon (laughs) but yeah i do again one thing i do enjoy is the weird camaraderie of this team of group of people who should never really be together I do find as a as a distraction. I don't enjoy as much the elongated, you know, Mephisto and uh, Blackheart kind of moments of him taunting Blackheart and figuring out what to do next. And and again, not really loving the Mephisto design, but really liking the Blackheart design. Yeah, yeah, that one page where they are confronting each other. Um, the just the contrast between the red and pink of Mephisto with the black and blue of Blackheart is is quite interesting to, to just to see the the contrast. What do you, what do you, did you like the, this, uh, the Pope character, this, this kid? Well, I mean, there's not really much to know about Pope. He doesn't really have a character. Uh, there's no, not much not. personality to him throughout this entire story. He's just weird. And he has this weird power because he like looks at a goat and kills the goat at the beginning of the issue. Now, 
in the Inhumans graphic novel called By Right of Birth, Pope is the, is the son of Black Bolt and Medusa. And when he was, uh, before he was born, when he was just inside Medusa's womb, Medusa started having hallucinations and everybody thought that this child was cursed. And they were afraid that he would have the voice of Black Bolt plus the madness of Maximus. And then he would be the downfall of all of mm. all of Inhumans. And so they sent him to Earth, which is where he is now being raised by a foster mother. And we can tell here, I guess, that something is going on because all he does is look at this goat and the goat dies. However, that doesn't have any play for any of the rest of the story. Like that doesn't come into the picture <laughs> at all. Like... Who cares if he kills this goat because he doesn't use this power ever again in, in this in this story? It's like a wasted potential. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, I mean, obviously, the, you know, Ahura would eventually be used, you know, when, like when he's aged up a lot. But yeah, at this time, not as much. Yeah. I just think that it was a, an odd thing to include this kid in the story because he doesn't really serve any real purpose like he's get he gets paired with brandy and i guess it's just a way for brandy to someone for brandy to talk to but he didn't need to be there if you take him out of the story i mean that means that gargon uh, gorgon and karnak don't have a real real purpose to be there either but he's he's not necessary no how do you feel about you know daredevil and and, and company just getting kind of getting ripped out and, and swallowed into hell <laughs> that was definitely like just right out of left field um i i mean it, it's how else are they going to get there except through some sort of transportation like this but um yeah i thought that was kind of weird and this whole the whole thing between Mephisto and Blackheart is it's actually very interesting development I found and this is where Anne Nascenti's political views come in and I don't exactly know where she stands even after reading the story where she stands with religion because with her liberal slant I would say that she's against it but mm. she the way she writes some of these characters makes me think that she also either understands it or accepts it or something I'm not exactly sure and we'll get to that more when we get to the end of the story but um, oh, one thing I wanted to point out is on page 258, we get that huge splash page with Mephisto. He's, it looks like it's the birth of Venus kind of pose, you know, that, that famous painting with Venus coming out of a shell. And uh, all of these creatures or, you know, whatever they are wailing in the, down below, he calls it the Accursed. This is an army that he created, that he rose up in order to take down the Beyonder in the Secret Wars 2. Mm, okay. Pope has kind of a Superman origin. Did did you find that he crash lands in a yeah <laughs> in the the backwater uh, mid middle America and gets gets a uh, uh, taken in by whoever found the shuttle and and I feel like this is uh, like what if Superman were crazy and this is the kind of the story that would follow that <laughs> for sure. So the next issue is what issue two hundred eighty. Uh, so it's Twilight of the Idols. Uh, by Anne Nascenti and Johnny Meter Jr. Um, this is, I mean, it's an enjoyable issue, but I mean, I would say for most of the issue doesn't actually move the plot along. Right. Because all the characters are trapped in different scenarios and they have to slowly kind of figure out where they are, what's going on, and some of them better than others uh, so that they can kind of move on from this torment. In fact, that's the next two issues. They're they're both the same. Yeah. They they are just kind of all of the team is now splintered off into different groups, and they all have their own separate adventures. And they're not going to meet up again until the end of this this story here. Uh, I love we, this. We open do introduce a new. We do introduce a new character though. 
We have the, uh, I guess, the angel. Um, yeah, and there's a couple of new characters. There's that angel, and then there's also Lucifer who shows up. Lucifer and Gabriel show up with uh, the number nine storyline. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, so each of these have kind of a different purpose. Daredevil finds himself in kind of a blank world. It's it's snow, and so all of the, everything's white, and so we get no backgrounds or anything. This is really, I think, to represent that Daredevil has no identity at the moment. Mm. He's cut himself off from everything that makes him him. And Nascenti makes sure that we know that, um, I think it's through Brandy's dialogue, that you know the, the netherworld or hell or whatever you want to call it appears differently to different people. And so a lot of our, our perception of what hell looks like is from things like the Bible or Dante's Inferno. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. And so each one of these people are in hell, but they're all experiencing it in a different way. And so Daredevil is experiencing it, it as a void, he, something that he can't get out of. He doesn't have an identity and he doesn't know where to go and he doesn't have anywhere to go to. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's probably the most visually striking as well. Yep. And then another one is Gorgon and Karnak. Uh, <laughs> this is a weird story for them, too. They've been kind of fighting because of the influence of Blackheart, but they end up in this world where um, all everything, all of the, like, the high life with like, all of the best food and wine and whatever, all of this kind of stuff is at their disposal. And they kind of just ignore it and choose to fight. <laughs> and we're going to see later on here, uh, or is this, that in this issue or the next one? Um, oh yeah, it's in this issue. They meet up with this, this devil angel. It's a combination of the two. And they're in this weird, like luxurious mansion. All of the books, if you go to page 284, all of the books on the bookshelf are all French philosophers. Oh yeah. And they deal with existentialism and everything like that. And so I don't exactly know what we're supposed to take away from their storyline here, except for like they're just in this luxurious place that they don't want to be in and they can't get out of. And I wonder if it has to do with the fact that they're part of the royal family of inhumans. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I don't really know exactly where, where their story goes. Th theirs is the most abstract to me. I would say that's true. Um, and it only gets more so. Yeah, right. Uh, Brandy and Pope get trapped at the bottom of uh, some sort of crevice, and they have to climb their way out. And as they start climbing, they they notice that carved into the rock it are all of these faces of different gods from different religions. And I think, oh, yeah, that's right. I think that this is supposed to be metaphorical for Brandy, who sees herself as... Um, well, she obviously doesn't believe in any sort of religion, and she sees herself above uh, all of that, and now is forced in a situation where she literally has to climb over top of all of these gods in order to, to, to give herself freedom. So, uh, interesting visual stuff there. Uh, yeah, it's just, just weird. This issue is just bizarre in that sense. And then the last story here is number nine, who now has angel wings. She has been created to be a perfect woman. So in her version of hell, she is held to such a high standard that she is an angel. And, um, it, she, is this the issue where she sees also like all of these billboards that have pornography on them and stuff? Is that the next issue? I think, I think she sees the billboards in this issue, but she doesn't get the wings till next issue. Oh, okay. No, well, no, she has, oh, no, I guess she does have the she wings, has the wings okay, here yeah. as well. Yeah. I think that, um, she, she realizes that, um, 
I don't know, her, her version of hell is now that she is trapped in a, in a world that is going to, you know, use her as what she was created to be rather than what she has been learning from Brandy and everything in the past few issues. Um, also interesting at the end here is Daredevil's story. Uh, he gets to, um, he, he, he's gotten to a couple of phone booths and he gets to this last booth and it actually is a confessional box, which is a theme that Daredevil goes back to often is his Catholic roots and in having to go to confession to just um, because he's Daredevil and has done a lot of stuff. But in order to save himself... And here's the real symbolic part is that he's in the snow, he's freezing, he needs to find heat. And what's going to be the thing that saves him is the cross that's on top of the confessional mm-hmm. box. He lights it and it becomes a fire for him and, and gives him warmth. It saves him. So that's definitely metaphorical for Daredevil being in the void. The only thing that he can hold on to is his faith. Um, oh, yeah, and Brandy does meet this other angel with a Beasties Boys shirt on. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to find out kind of his purpose until a little a little while later here. So, yeah, I mean, I have a – there's just so much to unpack, I think, about the the philosophy of all of this, which I wasn't expecting from from these issues based on what – I mean, I know that Anna likes to put in her politics and stuff, but this is on a kind of a different level if you really, really dig mm. into it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, next issue is issue number 281. It's called Heaven is Knowing Who You Are. And again, like I said, this is just carrying on the the threads. The characters are not going to meet up in this issue. They're still separated and going along their storylines. Daredevil's storyline, he has this flame that he's holding. And remember, the flame is a metaphor for his faith. The demons are attacking him, trying to snuff out the light. So he's really holding on to his faith as much as he can throughout this issue, protecting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Num- number nine is uh, it, she's now in this world of of angels and stuff. She's meeting up with all of these other angels, meets up with this one guy, his hunky guy named Gabriel, and uh, and kind of falls falls for him. And then she meets up with this other angel called Lucifer, who goes by the name Lucy. This is a very interesting character to me because the way that Lucy is portrayed is definitely got a lot of gay coding to the character. Um, mm. And so I'm figuring that this is definitely Anne putting in some of the her, her feminist views here, portraying, because Lucifer is another name for the devil. So this is obviously um, a devil type character, but by making this one, you know, a lesbian character, uh, and like the lesbian characters, this person is not wearing pants and has no genitals, so you don't actually know if it's male or female. Could go either way, but which mm-hmm. is which is I think why it has that kind of coding to it. But um, I, I can't remember if it's this issue or the next one that Brandy actually, or not Brandy. Um, number oh yeah, this is this issue on three oh seven. Um, uh, number nine eventually just kisses Lucifer. And doesn't give in to the the typical male character, but kind of goes in the more feminist way and goes after the lesbian character. I don't know. Do you know, understand what I'm trying to say here? I do. It's interesting. I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. It's interesting. It's an interesting way to read into it. And it's, I, I definitely, like, I, I think it was trying to have a play on the kind of traditional gender norms and that the, he's the other, you know, Gabriel's the more typical masculine man. Yep. And this guy is, you know, is not that usual representation. I think it was also more of, uh, of a comment on, you know, she's been 
you know, supposed to be bred to be with, you know, men and serve men. And this is the more manly man, but she chooses to be with someone who doesn't, isn't that ideal, which kind of goes to your point that, you know, maybe it's, you know, as far as she could go in, in you know, 30 years ago to tell that kind of story. I think so, yeah. about a different, different type of coding than we're expecting. It's definitely the coding because they refer to, to Lucifer as a him. So we're supposed to assume there's a him, but the way that it's visually is, is different. And we also find out that Gabriel is Blackheart in disguise. And so yeah. Blackheart's trying to tempt number nine as being a typical male physical male character, but that's not working. And I, I really am interested in, um, in Blackheart's progression here because now Blackheart's realizing that, you know, Mephisto's ways are out of date. Uh, the way of tempting is not going to work. These humans have a mind of their own and they're making their own decisions and maybe they should just, we should just let them do that. Mm. Gabe, um, well, I mean, in the, in the, in the issue before you also had Mephisto kind of when he was talking to Blackheart, he did say you could cheat, um, which I think was different as well. That, that you know, he's not going to o- only do the traditional kind of what's allowed either. He's going to cheat maybe in different ways. But in this one here on page 306, Blackheart says to himself, perhaps this king and his subjects dynamic is more tenuous than I knew. Perhaps it's time for a rebellion, a revolution that only Blackheart can mm. lead, son against father. He's going to go against Mephisto. Um, not because he cares for the humans, but just because he doesn't believe in Mephisto's ways anymore. This is essentially Blackheart becoming an atheist. Mm. He's turning against the religion that has been set out by Mephisto and, you know, Christianity in general, I guess. So that that's... It is weird. That yeah. From, yeah. And from that point onwards, every time we see... I think it's around from this time onwards. Every time we see Mephisto in this story, he's now hideously kind of fat and like lying down like he's not the traditional Mephisto we've been seeing either which is weird it's just a weird choice like I don't know why they suddenly changed his physicality to be this more bloated you know leader kind of lying down and as opposed to what we'd seen before but this is where they go now yeah it's very odd very strange for sure and then in the middle of this all we have Silver Surfer who just comes in oh my god and is I don't even know why he's here except for the fact that it's Mephisto and of course they have a long history together but he didn't need to be here no I do really love the last two pages of the issue where you have Daredevil fending everyone off with that big, with the flame. Yeah. Um, and he's being able to, you know, get rid of all the demons and you have the, the internal narration. Um, you know, you believe your evil breaks a man. Sometimes it does, but when it doesn't break a man, it makes him even stronger. And that last kind of shot, again, the great line work, you can tell again that, you know, JR had time to make this shot count. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really nice. And it reminds me of Dragon Ball Z. Uh, do you ever watch that show? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but that's very funny. Every time uh, Goku is defeated in battle, it just makes him stronger. And so he just gets stronger and stronger throughout the course of the series because he keeps getting defeated. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's interesting. it's interesting too because, I mean... I, I mean, at this point in time, you know, Daredevil had been brought low by Born Again and then started to rebuild back up. And then, because what he had that, that made him survive all that was love. Like the whole ending of Born Again is him arm in arm with Karen Page. Even all these terrible things happened, he had love and that was enough to kind of help him through the next step, right? Yep. So Innocenti comes in and says, well, let's take away the love. Right. And so she kind of shatters that um, and his sense of, you know, what he's been doing in good, in good and bad uh, and being righteous or not. And now he's in a literal hell 
fighting against the demons and this is how we're going to rebuild him up. So really this is the this is the beginning of getting to issue 300. She won't be here by then, but really like the next 20 issues are all about, you know, how do we rebuild Daredevil to be back to, you know, what we used to have before Born Again. Interesting. It was a long journey to get there. Nice. That makes me really excited for the next volume, Last Rites. That should be that should be good to see this come to fruition. I mean, I've said it before, but like Last Rites is a perfect sequel to Born Again because you know, it flips the script. It's beautiful. But again, you don't get there if you don't have the Senti doing weird, weird stuff with Daredevil to push <laughs> right. him outside of his comfort zone, yep. push the character in different directions. And then when you feel, finally get to the sequel to Born Again, I mean, it's not actually called that, but I mean, I think of it that way as thematically. It feels more earned because it didn't happen right away. Yeah, It took years. Years of a guy being on the road with a weird Motley crew and not being in this comfort zone. By the time you get there, you feel like we earned this. Totally. Okay, so on page, just before we go on to the next one, on page 304, Brandy is still climbing up the mountain or the crevice or whatever she is with Pope and also with this angel character. And she's going through this existential crisis as well. Where does she fit in? How does she relate to all of these gods that she's seeing on the side of the mountain? And she knows all of them. She calls them by name. And at one point, the angel says, um, you know, Brandy, you should be careful how you treat people. He says, an earth poet once said, be careful lest you chase an angel from, from your door. And that poet is William Blake from a poem called Holy Thursday. And it, it's it's a reference to like, do you remember um, the, the opening to Disney's uh, Beauty and the Beast where the prince meets this old mm-hmm. woman who wants shelter and he refuses the woman and it turns out she's actually a beautiful enchantress. And once he sees that, he's like, oh, I made a mistake. You can, you can stay here. But she says, no, you know what? I already know your heart is terrible, so I'm going to put a curse on you. And that's the same thing here. It's like, be careful lest you chase an angel from your door. It's like, you don't know if the person that you're treating you don't know anything about the person you're treating. It could be the most powerful person in the world uh, or mm. it could be God or whatever. So you got to treat that person, everybody nice. Otherwise, it could come back to bite you in the butt. And so I think that's where she's at right now. It's like she's treated all of these people poorly in the past. I don't really know who they're referring to by people that they, she's treated poorly in the past. Um, but that that's the lesson that she's supposed to learn here. Okay, last issue, number 282, Crooked Halos. I feel like at some point, even in in Decente got bored of this because we don't even get to see the final, like, quote-unquote, battle between the Silver Surfer and Mephisto. Like, it's inconsequential. <laughs> it's not even... It's not even the thing. Like she, she wanted to basically have Daredevil and his allies be tempted, and wanted them to come up, you know, rise above and be able to kind of turn around and walk out of hell and not care about you know stooping to to Mephisto's level. And then at, at the same time, you have you know Mephisto casting out Blackheart. You have you know Silver Surfer showing up and battling Mephisto and trying to you know stop him from you know his regular shenanigans. You have Brandy out of nowhere unceremoniously getting murdered. Yeah. Uh, by Mephisto, like, what is happening? It's very strange. And then we have this huge, huge, fat Mephisto. He's actually eating all of the accursed, which is why he's getting fatter and fatter. Oh, I guess they did build that story. That that That's the reason why. It's so, like, weird. I'm glad they never really used this version of the character again, because I don't like <laughs> yeah. it. It is very strange. I, yeah. I do remember years ago, I was playing the uh, the miniatures game Heroclix, and they did make a, a fat, weird, messed up Mephisto they did. from this storyline. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, thanks. I don't really want this but great that's awesome 
I hope he was on your team often, Adam. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I had him, but I think I used him a couple times from a friend, so I think I at least used him. Did <laughs> not enjoy okay. it. That's good. Yeah, this is a this is a very strange issue to conclude with. A lot happens really fast, and it's like all of uh, everything happens, and it's not of any of the heroes' choices. So they're all in their separate oh. streams, and then Mephisto just says, "Let's bring everybody together." And so he brings them all together. None of them actually accomplish finding a way out on their own or finding each other. And then in the end, uh, they just kind of magically appear in the grassy field. Daredevil uses his faith to to get them away from Mephisto. He just says, um, we all forgive you and God forgives you. And so that's how we're going to be free. And then they're free. And it's like, what? That's it. <laughs> really? <laughs> and then, yeah, Brandy dies. And in the end, we see her as an angel. And she's now with the other angel that she had been with before. Um, and I don't know, did she learn her lesson? I'm not exactly sure. It's, this is kind of a rough ending for this story. It is a little rough, and even like an interesting meditation at the end, too, because they're like, hey, look at that. The kid, I think he senses us. Children can see angels, then they grow up and can't see us anymore. And I'm like, that almost seems like a weird innocenti line because she spent so much time with all the other kids that were used to in, in Hell's Kitchen, and I don't think they can see the angels. So just interesting kind of hard left that, you know, now she's making this kind of pronouncement that this character's making. It's just an odd choice. And is it supposed to say that, you know, angels actually, angels and demons, like this stuff actually exists like, is she she's saying this, but as we get older, we just become so cynical that we don't believe anymore. It's like the whole Santa Claus thing. Yeah, uh, like, which, again, is interesting an interesting meditation because I would say the, uh, you know, the fat boys are very cynical. So I guess they don't have that period of innocence. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very strange. And then, so I don't, I haven't read anything else after this. I don't, like, the last rights volume is not out, so I don't know where this goes. But this is the, the end of John. John Romita Jr.'s tenure on Daredevil, right? Because I think mm. this this is the beginning of Lee Weeks after this. I mean, it's it, you, I mean those the, those are those artists are so stylistically different. They really are, yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting. And now I think about it. I mean, if you think of traditional John Romita Jr., probably not because you're used to he's done a lot of Spider Man and a lot of like more street level stuff that isn't batshit crazy. Um, but this is this is the run of his that goes the most askew from you know that general idea. Um, so Lee Weeks is kind of a return to more traditional form. Right. And the story becomes a little bit more traditional and stuff. And so that's, it all works together. I bet JR had a lot of fun doing these issues. There's just so much to be creative mm -hmm. rather than just talking heads, rather than just people, street level people. It's like, there's a lot to actually just play with and have fun with. That is very true. Uh, well, overall, if you put these two volumes, T Touch of Typhoid and Heart of Darkness together, what are your thoughts, Adam? Uh, at, I mean, at times a little uneven. Um, it's, it is a slow progression from extremely street level to as far away from it as you can get. Um, I feel like if you read like the first issue uh, of Volume 13 and the last ish issue, regular issue of Volume 14, you'd be like, what did I miss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah right like in a way that you're not used to like a lot of the other like a lot of books you know things will be different there'll be different storylines etc but i mean there's such a huge shift in tone um that they feel so divorced from each other but again you slowly get there over time um you know it, it's it's if i don't know it, it's such a weird grab bag of a book i can see why people love it um and are really drawn to it i think people 
generally, and this might be unfair, but are probably thinking when they think of Nesenti more of the when Typhoid Mary is running around and not necessarily this road trip, you know, through wherever uh, with this weird Motley crew. They're probably not thinking that as much as they are of the former stuff. Um, but, you know, it's still very strong. It's helped out by a, a, ma- a very good performance by Johnny Major Jr. Um, when he's on, he's on. I mean, I always love some of the character designs, but it's hard to deny the amount of skill that's going in here and how much, you know, he's really putting a lot of effort in. This doesn't feel like he phoned it in. Well, I think a lot of that also has to do with Al Williamson, who is fantastic at everything he does. I'm a big Al Williamson Mm -hmm. fan. And if you compare John Romita's work here with his work that he did on X-Men just slightly before this with inks by Dan Green... They look very different. It doesn't look as polished, as professional, or as detailed. And I think a lot of this has to do with Al Williamson here. So I want to give credit to the inker because that's definitely, I think, shaping a lot of this book. Yeah. You, Adam, have an interview with Anne Nascenti on your podcast. And I do. I'm going to go listen to that because I haven't. I should have listened to it before we tackled any of Anasenti stuff, um, and it was quite a while for for you. So I don't even know if you remember anything of what she said there. But if there are any relevant clips, I'm going to try and put them in here, and uh, uh, and people should go check out Adam's podcast at Comic Shenanigans. Yeah, I would appreciate that. If people did. Yeah, it's hard to. I you know I was just thinking when did I talk to her? It was five years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's very long. It's actually, it's kind of crazy to me that she was in that first kind of, I guess, wave, that first uh, year of where I was actually doing interviews, where, again, a lot of, for the first 250 episodes of my show, had never really done interviews. They'd maybe done one. Um, and then over time, obviously, my show became much more focused on interviews because um, those were what I like doing. But, yeah, it's it's a long time ago. It's one of those ones where I should probably go back and listen to it because it's been so long. Another one that I've been meaning to, re, to re-listen to I haven't yet is uh, I did um, I think my, my third interview ever was with Chris Claremont. I really started out strong, um, but I don't remember it very well. And actually, as we record this, I'm about to talk to him again about something completely different. His Fantastic Four run. And it's one of those things where I'm like, man, I, I, I really should go back. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you don't ask the same questions again. Yeah. You know, or, you know, I don't think anyone would, you know, begrudge me if I did. If it's, I think with him, it's been almost six years. So I think it's, it's probably fine. But yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, enough time goes by, you will forget. So I, I am excited to, you know, uh, to find out if you find any relevant pieces of uh, my interview with her. Um, I was still relatively new at the interviewing game. So please be, be very kind <laughs> okay. uh, when you listen to it. Um, for people who want to download that episode, it's Comic Shenanigans episode 302. Again, that's from uh, September 2015. What was it like to become the regular writer on Daredevil after that that seismic shift had happened? Well, you know, I always like to um, say something glib about that, which is that I was too stupid to really know what I was getting into. I mean, I was new to the business, so I had only I hadn't been there that long, and um, you know, I was very. I thought everything that was going on with Marvel Comics was really great. I think there was like. Bill Sienkiewicz on Moon Knight and Walt Simonson on Thor, you know, and I think Mary Jo Duffy was writing Star Wars. There was a ton of wonderful projects, like pages just all over the office. You know, Archie had, you know, all the new epic books. And, you know, you walked in there and it was just like insanely creative. And I think at the time, Frank Miller's stuff on Daredevil was just another you know, insanely great thing, you know. I think that, 
you know, I wasn't all that aware with how the media was responding to everything. But from our point of view at the office, there were just tons of pages and tons of artists everywhere working in a in a big bullpen and wandering around the offices. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like it was like this is good. Look at this. Hey, look at this page. Hey, look at that page. You know, and everything was kind of included in that, and including like what was coming out of Larry Hama's office. He had all these wacky, you know. Uh, I think what was it was cracked or something, and um, GI Joe. I'm I think everything just felt fun. So when someone said, "Here, take over this character," it wasn't like, "Oh my god," you know, something seminal just happened. It was kind of like, "Sure." I guess it's it's easier to take something on when you don't kind of have the hindsight of knowing like this is how it's going to be received later. Like it's yeah, just I, in the moment. I think say that about anything that you know about any kind of a comic book run it's um you know especially back then there weren't i don't know maybe there was one publication there was uh you know you didn't have the internet remember so if you didn't buy the comics journal or one of the other little publications it wasn't like you know You'd go to conventions and talk to your fans. You'd get handwritten letters. But there wasn't all this, like, frenzy internet, you know? No. Now, uh, I have um, a lot of questions from one particular user. Um, So he had a few good questions. Uh, His first was, did your story ideas on Daredevil tend to start from a theme or an issue? kitchen a lot I think a lot of my stories came right out of what was happening in my life mm-hmm. you know so if you know I would be walking down the street and I'd see someone trying to open up some kind of a storefront and I'd be like oh yeah I wonder if, if Matt Murdock he's supposed to have lots of empathy what if he was like helping people with legal problems on the streets you know or you know, there was a people talking about, you know, uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember. I mean, pr- pretty much everything came out of the streets of New York. Oh, there goes some skateboarder kids. They're cute, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Put them in the comic. You know, it was very much like documentary style, the mise en scene of my world. I felt like New York was a family. I was out every night, you know, whether it was in the East Village or Lower Manhattan or Hell's Kitchen. And it felt like a small town to me. There, You know, there was, I knew a lot of people. And I think the stories really just came out of um, the way a documentarian will just look around and look at the streets and get inspired by that. Did you like doing crossover stories for the big events when you were writing Daredevil? You seemed to thrive on those stories, and your Daredevil stories were consistently the best part of those events. Um, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really fun. I mean, I, you have to understand that when you're when you're, you're doing a monthly comic, it's like coming up with a little movie a month. And it's, you know, you it, it's a lot of work in terms of you have to have um, a, a long-reaching 
narrative for your character. Like, you'll sit down and you'll go, okay, I want Daredevil to really hit the skids and be destroyed, but that's not going to happen for two years, you know? <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get there yet, but I'm going to get there. <laughs> you know, so right now, and then I want to have, and then I have a bunch of single-issue ideas, you know, like, I want to confront why he wears the devil suit. I want to confront, you know, how Christian is his Christian roots. How much empathy does the guy really have? So you start, you start like testing your character with a bunch of little stories, um, and it's like then there's the rhythm of I'm going to do a small story now. I'm going to build to a big epic. So you know you're you're working and you have to come up with a with a good story every month and with a beginning, middle, end theme and all that stuff. And um, so when somebody says, hey, you know, you want to play in this playground? Usually you're like, oh, thank God there's a playground to play in, you know? <laughs> and, it's like, and, they, and the way they did them back then, it was really good. There was just like, you know, New York goes to hell. We don't care how you take New York to hell. If you feel like playing, take New York to hell. And so for me, it was, you know, the traffic and the chaos and the stink and the garbage piling up. And the New York I knew, I said, well, what if I just exaggerate all this and make it, you know, like kind of believable hell. And um, so, you know, everybody plays in that sandbox or the mutant massacre. I think that was one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over at DC, I was just, you know, wrote four years of comics for DC. And when when you get, you know, somebody sends around an email, and, you know, Scott Snyder sent around an email um, that was basically, I'm going to put the Joker through hell, you know? And this is how you can play. You know, and, you know, basically he said, you're rating Catwoman. Catwoman doesn't know what Joker's up to, has no idea what Joker's up to, but he's stalking her, you know, and he wants to find out how much uh, she loves Batman. And that's like it. It's just like one line. And then you're just like, great, as long as I don't violate that precept, I can play those are the kinds of crossovers I like because then you're going to get a lot of individual creativity. Hmm. You know, as opposed to crossovers where there's like more complicated marching orders. Typhoid Mary, I used to have a rule about Typhoid Mary. If you're going to write a Typhoid Mary story, you really should be driving the reader crazy. <laughs> like, that's the, that's, you know, it's almost like, you know, if you were to if you were going to do it in terms of Fight Club, you know? What was the number one rule of Fight Club? I don't even remember what it was. Wasn't that you don't uh, talk about Fight Club? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't talk about Fight Club. But the number one rule of, for the Typhoid Fight Club is, you know, drive the drive all the characters in the story, drive the reader, drive yourself insane, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, those stories were supposed to be so wacky that even I as the writer often didn't know what was going on so um, yeah you said something about uh, well that's like Mary Jane and Peter Parker and I think that at the time I thought well you know Mary Jane and Peter Parker they're married now you know and they have this happy little life what would it be like if typhoid came to visit you know (laughs) (laughs) 
And, um, you know, it was kind of a feminist story because Typhoid in her root is kind of a feminist character. You know, she's always like, why are you cooking and cleaning and staying home and waiting, waiting, waiting for Peter Parker to come home? Your husband lies to you. Your husband is never home. And you're sitting here and you're cooking and cleaning, you know, and she just rips apart Mary Jane's world. And makes her kind of think about all that stuff. Because Mary Jane was like a 50s housewife at that time. You know, in the comic. And, um... So typhoid is like a bomb you throw into someone's world. You know, like, that really... Every typhoid story should be a bomb. Uh, So if you're going to follow along with what we're doing here on the Epic Marvel Podcast, coming up next we have uh, a journey into uh, West Coast Avengers with my co-host Josh. And then after that we'll be in um, Fantastic Four, When Things Change, the Steve Englehart stuff. So we actually have a bunch of Englehart coming up with West Coast Avengers and Fantastic Four. And I'll have an interview with Englehart to share with all of you at that time as well. So, have you talked to him yet? Yep, yep, I did. It was good. We talked all about um, West Coast Avengers and the Vision Scarlet Witch uh, series that he did. That's very exciting. He is a tremendous interview. Uh, very, you know, very forthcoming with stuff. And I know you've talked to him before, right? Yep, yeah, a few times. I've got a. A number of interviews with him about Fantastic Four, about Doctor Strange, about Silver Surfer. So yeah, good stuff. He's always up for talking, which is really, really great. Yeah, for sure. Very, I'm very glad that's true. Um, one, sorry, this is shameless self-promotion again. Sure. Um, that, episode, that episode I did with Anacenti, which was just over an hour, I forgot that the episode right after that, I did have DG Chichester on it. And I'm like, that's a great one to punch. <laughs> that's right. That's great. So again, if you want to check that out, please go Feel free, people. Oh, definitely. Yeah, they're always good stuff. Well, and that does it for our episode today. Follow us on uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm there. You can also search for Epic Collections on Facebook, and you'll find our Epic Collection discussion group where we just talk about Epic Collections all day and have a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, we'll wrap it up here. I hope to see you all again next week when we talk about West Coast Avengers. And thanks for tuning in, everyone. Bye-bye.